I'm guessing that you've heard this phrase before. Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Think about the statement being made there. Think about what's being communicated when you hear that. Seeing is believing. Now, there's another expression, another expression, a similar, a very similar expression that I believe makes the same point. And it's this. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Have you ever used that phrase before? Okay, let me give you a really mundane example of how that expression, that second expression might be used. A husband tells his wife, I'm going to clean out the shed this weekend. I'm going to clean out the shed this weekend, to which the wife responds, Yep, you guessed it. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. So what's abundantly clear in that example is that the wife's experience up to this point in her life has led her to conclude that any shed cleaning by her husband is a practical impossibility. That's what's happened, right? That's what's happened. For her, words of commitment, words of reassurance, promises simply are not enough. Now, let me give you another example. This time, not a mundane example, but a really meaningful example. A meaningful example of how that expression might be used. A friend tells her struggling co-worker, I know things are hard right now in your life, but God can really change things for you. God can make a difference in your life. To which the co-worker responds, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. For many, the idea of God not only caring about, but intervening in their life in our everyday lives, is a practical impossibility. It just is. For others, the very idea of God's existence is a practical impossibility. That is, their experience up to this point in their life has led them to conclude that there is no God. There truly is no God. Or to put it another way, God for them is nothing more than a needy person's magical, invisible sky fairy whose existence for that skeptical naysayer would need to be proven by some tangible, by some visible evidence. For them, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. So a mundane example and a meaningful example. My hope is that you, at the very least, agree with my appraisal this morning, the way I've ranked these, that you recognize that the question of God's existence is an infinitely more important question than will Mr. Jones clean out the shed this weekend. And of course, the question of God's existence opens up a floodgate of other questions, right? It opens up a floodgate of other questions, questions about the most important things in your life, in any life. But is that expression actually true? 
the expression that we've been talking about. Is it actually true? Is seeing believing? Will every person believe if they see? And conversely, can a person believe without seeing? I hope that you will keep that question in mind and take a few minutes to look with me at an ancient book called the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. John's Gospel is simply an ancient account of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. You might know him as Jesus Christ. Christ just means Messiah. It's a Greek way of expressing a Hebrew term, the Hebrew term Messiah. If you don't know a lot about Jesus, that's okay. At the very least, I'm guessing that you know his name. Not only does it have the distinction of being a regularly used cuss word, but it's also regularly used every day probably by well over 2 billion worshipers in this world. That's nearly a third of the earth's inhabitants. Jesus is arguably the most influential person who has ever lived. But why? Why? Why was he so influential? Why is he still revered and even trusted as a present reality to this day, 2,000 years later? Well, the Gospel of John, that ancient book that I was telling you about, the Gospel of John was written to explain questions like these. And critically, in regard to our conversation, John's account argues that seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. The writer, John, sincerely and passionately wants his readers to believe. He does. He wants them to believe that Jesus is not only God's own unique Son, but that ultimately He is God in human flesh. But the belief or the faith that He hopes to stir up is not based on seeing. It's not. So for those of you who can identify with that I'll believe it when I see it mindset. For those of you who can identify with that way of thinking, this begs the question, right? It begs the question. On what basis should his readers believe? If seeing is not believing, on what basis should his readers believe? What reasons does he provide? What arguments does he put forward in order to persuade those who are listening to his words? Well, to answer that question, let me first point you to two stories in John's Gospel. The first story is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, we're not going to read through that story. The story story itself is about how Jesus transformed ordinary water, specifically 180 gallons of water, He transformed it into really, really good wine. And he did it instantly. Without even uttering a word. Not a single word. But listen to one of the concluding verses in this passage. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is John 2, 11. Take a look. This, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Okay, hold on, hold on. What you may have noticed there is that the disciples of Jesus saw, then believed, right? (laughs) They saw, and then they believed. But didn't I just say that's not what John's doing here? That he's not arguing that? Well, let me clarify this seeing-believing idea. What John is describing here is not seeing as believing. He's describing seeing that led to belief. Seeing that led to belief. And I'm making that distinction between the two ideas because John describes many signs. Did you see that word in in chapter 2, verse 11? John describes many signs in this book. That is, many miracles that Jesus performed that people witnessed with their own eyes, but they did not ultimately believe. The best example of that is a man named Judas. Judas Iscariot. So I believe John would argue seeing is not always believing. But let's look at another account. Keep that in mind. Let's look at another account or another story from John's Gospel. That second story is found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Listen for both differences and similarities in this second account. Take a look. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Capernaum was south and southeast of Cana. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea, southern Israel, to Galilee, northern Israel, he heard that he was in Cana, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, (laughs) you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, when that son began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, the same hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So, you may have noticed some of the similarities between this story and the first story. Both are set where? They're both set in Cana in Galilee. Both are amazing miracles. And both are numbered 
miracles. Did you see that? Did you notice that? They're numbered. The water into wine was, chapter 2, verse 11, labeled as the first. And the healing of this official son is described by John here in verse 54 of chapter 4 as the second sign. The first sign and the second sign that Jesus performed. Interestingly, even though John's gospel contains five more signs for a total of seven signs, the first two are the only ones that are actually numbered. First two that are explicitly numbered. But I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason that both of these are even linked by location. Did you notice how Jesus First response to this man who came to him in desperate need. His first response to this man was a statement to the man about what? Seeing and believing. Seeing and believing. And I think John, I think Jesus responded this way to this man because he wanted to test this man's faith. He wanted to gauge this man's faith. And he continued testing him by simply doing what? He, he simply announced in verse 50 that the man's son had been healed. He didn't say, I'm going to go with you. Let's go now. He just simply announced. He just spoke it and said, your son is healed. And how does the man respond? He simply takes his word for it. He hears and believes. Does he see? No, he doesn't see. He hears the word and he accepts it. He takes Jesus' word for it. He trusts Jesus. He believes without seeing. Now think about the order and relationship of these first two signs. The only ones that are numbered in this gospel. The first account describes these students or apprentices of Jesus believing when they witness his miracle working power in turning water into wine. And the second account describes how a man simply heard about the miracle working power of Jesus. He heard that word of miracle working assurance and he believed that word. And then later what happened? That man saw in person the astounding effects of the miracle working power of Jesus and his faith was strengthened. It it repeats that he believed, right? He believed in this maybe fuller way or something. We don't know. Now, why is this important? The relationship between the first story and the second story. Why in this order? Why are they linked in the ways that they're linked? I think... This is the case because John is revealing something extremely important here to us about his strategy in this ancient account. John could not take his readers back in time to witness the miracles of Jesus. But he could write about them. He could testify about them. He could bear witness about these miracles. And like this man with the dying son, John was calling his readers and he's calling us today throughout this over the centuries. He's calling us to trust that word is true. He explains the goal for this entire book near the very end of it. Take a look. 
John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Many other signs in the presence of His disciples. They're not written in this book. But these are written. These are written down. These are recorded. These have been preserved so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. Now you may be thinking, so that's John's strategy? Really? That's John's strategy? He simply wants us to take His word for it? Maybe he's just making all this up. Maybe some guy named John sat down almost 2,000 years ago and said, you know what, I'm going to come up with a really interesting story. Here it is. It's about a guy named Jesus, right? Maybe he was doing that. Why should we trust any of this? Those are excellent questions, really good questions, important questions to ask. And they're questions that I think John anticipated when he wrote this account. I say that because this gospel actually provides us with four clear reasons to believe that Jesus was from God. Four clear reasons to believe that He is God. Four clear reasons to believe that He can provide us today with what is truly abundant and eternal life. Meaningful life. Life that matters and life that will not be stopped by anything. It will never be it will never end even. It cannot even be ended by death. Does that sound good to you? Let me share those four reasons with you. Four reasons given by John. Take a look. First, we should believe without seeing because others did see. Others did see. John wrote at the outset of this book, take a look, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as a human being. And we have seen His glory. This is written by an eyewitness. We have seen His glory. John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 14. At the opposite end of the book, another scribe adds this about the author. In John chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He was just being talked about before in the verses before this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things in this book. He's written these things and we know that his testimony is true. John was known to his readers. They knew him in person. They knew that he was trustworthy. They knew who he was. And John wasn't alone, of course, in testifying to what, other, to what he had actually seen. There were many, many people, including people like John the Baptist, described in the opening chapter of this book, who witnessed these things, who spoke of the very same things. If all of this was the product of, product of one person or a few persons' imagination, that could have been easily proven in the earliest days of Christianity. It could have been undone. But lots and lots of people told the same story. And they often told this story in the face of opposition and persecution. 
They had no angle. They had nothing worldly to gain from doing this. From, they had nothing to gain from fabricating a story like this. But they all told the same story about the same things. Second, a second reason we should believe without seeing is because the Scriptures predicted these things. John chapter 2, verse 22. John chapter 13, verse 18. Chapter 17, verse 12. Chapter 19, verse 24. Chapter 19, verse 28. Chapter 19, verse 36. Chapter 19, verse 37. Chapter 20, verse 9. All of those describe how events from the life of Jesus were first predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures written hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And as Jesus told some of the religious leaders of his day, he said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Those scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, 45 and 46. Number three, a third way that John makes his case. We should believe without seeing because no one has ever spoken like Jesus. No one has ever spoken like Jesus. When Jewish officers, like the temple police, were sent to arrest Jesus by their leaders, when they were sent, but they came back empty-handed, this is what they told their superiors about why they let him go. John 7, verse 46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. No one. This was true in first century Israel and it's still true today. I challenge you, I challenge you to read the words of any religious teacher, of any philosopher, of any great writer, of any great leader, of any influencer today, and then read the words of Jesus. And you will see that though there are many interesting insights and though there are many thoughtful observations and helpful words of advice out there, no one has ever spoken like Jesus. No one. No one has ever made the claims that He has made. This is why after some of Jesus' followers turned away from Him, Peter answered Jesus the way that he did when questioned by him in John chapter 6, verses 67 and 68. Take a look. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Number four, a fourth reason A fourth reason we should believe without seeing is because the signs themselves are radically unique. The signs themselves are radically unique. Just as the claims that Jesus made about Himself are radically unique, so too were the miracles that He performed. Water to wine. Healing with a word from 16 miles away. 
instantly restoring a paralyzed man to his feet, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, walking on water, healing a man born blind, raising a man from the dead. As Jesus Himself encouraged His critics, take a look, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works I do that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. And in John's Gospel, this ancient account, all of this, these seven signs, all of this leads to what could be called an eighth sign. An eighth sign. After His crucifixion three days earlier, that eighth sign was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And those four reasons, that four-pronged strategy that John's using, those four reasons apply to this sign as well. There were many witnesses to his resurrection john chapter 20 verses 1 through 8 the jewish scriptures spoke of his resurrection john chapter 2 verse 22 john chapter 20 verse 9 jesus spoke of raising himself chapter 2 verse 19 and finally the work itself the resurrection speaks of jesus that is it testifies. It, it, is, it is an historical event that bears witness to the fact that there never has been and never will be anyone like Jesus. Now, speaking of His resurrection, there is a story that John records that I believe is extremely helpful when it comes to our conversation about seeing and believing. When the disciples of Jesus see their resurrected teacher, a disciple named Thomas is not with them. He's not with them at that time. And later on when they see him, when they see Thomas, he does not believe their wild claims about Jesus coming back to life. Jesus being alive. He says in chapter 20, verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's not just seeing is believing. That's touching is believing too. Did you see that? <laughs> seeing is believing and touching is believing for Thomas. And he's not like dispassionate about it. He seems pretty passionate. He seems pretty committed to this, doesn't he? Now, Jesus does, in fact, appear to him. He appears to him. But look at what he tells Thomas in chapter 20, verse 29. And he's really speaking across all the centuries to us today. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Seeing can lead to faith. We've seen that in the gospel already. But as John also records, seeing is not always believing. And yet Jesus 
tells us that those who do not see and yet believe, they are truly blessed. They are truly blessed. Why is that though? Why are they blessed? Why are they designated like this? Why are they labeled with this word, blessed? One answer to that question is simple but profound. And here it is. The convictions of your heart are far more important than you being convinced with your eyes. The convictions of your heart are far more important than being convinced with your eyes. Now, for some people, that sounds totally squishy. And squishy in a really bad way, right? Like logically squishy, like, like mentally and reasonably squishy. That is not what John is saying. That's not what I'm saying. We're not separating reason from faith here. As, John, as we've just seen, John has reasoned throughout his gospel. He's telling his readers there are very good reasons, objective reasons, persuasive reasons, things that really have happened, things that really exist in the world, not just in your heart. That's because you feel that way. That's not what's going on here. John has reasoned. He has brought forth good reasons to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and can do what he promised to do. No one's separating reason from faith, but please don't fool yourself. Your convictions shape how you see the world. A husband who is convinced his wife is unfaithful will see what he wants to see in how she interacts with other men. Even when his charges against her are completely unfounded. Our lives in this world are ultimately lived by faith, not by sight. Those two have a relationship still, faith and sight. But they're ultimately lived by faith, not by sight. That's true of the most devout Christian and the most committed atheist. Our lives are ultimately lived by faith, not by sight. Therefore, Jesus uses this word blessed because those who have believed without seeing have not only embraced his liberating truth, but they are also prepared. They are empowered for an earthly life in which he is not physically present. For an earthly life in which true faith is critical. For a life in which true faith is always, always Always being tested. That's what life is in this world. So if you can believe without seeing, you are equipped and empowered in a radically wonderful way for the path ahead. The truth is this. All of us believe a variety of things, important things about ourselves, about others, and about the world. And we believe these things without ever seeing. We never see some kind of proof to believe these things, and yet we believe them. We believe without tangible proof. We believe without touching or tasting or testing something physical or visible or objective. You see, we already believe without seeing. 
We already believe without seeing. And, and, and that on the basis of far fewer reasons and relatively unimpressive reasons when compared to testimonies like that of John. You see, we tend to accept the mushy and the mundane. But John has given us miracles. John has given us miracles. So what do you believe? What are the convictions of your hearts? I mean, about really meaningful things like the astounding and unrivaled claims of Jesus. Here's my challenge to you. Read John's Gospel from beginning to end. Maybe multiple times. Read John's Gospel. And as you do that, ask yourself, are there good reasons to believe that this is true? If it is true, what will it mean for my life? Or put another way, what am I losing or foregoing if I reject Jesus? If I stick with a I'll believe it when I see it mindset. And when we read these words, when you read these words, when you do consider this encouragement that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10, long after this, this, this message, this, uh, this encouragement carries over through the centuries to us, long, us living today long after his earthly ministry, long after the first invitations that he gave, this is what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep. Other sheep. That are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And here's the key. And they will Listen to my voice. They will listen to my voice. Maybe at some point during our conversation, you've already heard his voice. If you have, please respond to him. Please reach out to him in faith. And please know this. Like the man with the dying son, when you believe the word without seeing you will soon see the amazing effects of the miracle-working power of Jesus in your own life. You will. You'll see those effects. And that will encourage your faith just like that man's. It will encourage your faith all the more as that faith gives you a new kind of sight. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name.